It seems the mass shooter in Highland Park was obsessed with violence. He made numerous troubling posts online, including an animation that he drew of a school shooting. He has also threatened a family member with a knife. Yet he was still able to get a gun license and legally buy multiple guns and a high-powered rifle here in this state. So why didn't the state's red flag law prevent him from getting these guns? And since Illinois has stricter gun laws than surrounding states, why did they fail to prevent the Highland Park shooting? Joining us now to discuss is Patrick Smith, a WBEZ criminal justice reporter. Hey, Patrick. Hey, Sasha. Good to have you in studio. And Annie Sweeney is a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Hi, Annie. Welcome. Hi. Good morning. First off, Patrick, I'll start with you. I want you to remind us what Illinois' red flag law is and how it works. So the Illinois red flag law, it's also known as the Firearms Restraining Order Act. It allows people who are close to someone, family members, roommates, ex-partners, to go to a judge and say, this person is too dangerous to have guns. You know, things like he made threats or he's been actually, he or they have been violent toward me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's similar to what you do to get a regular restraining order saying a person can't come near me. You go to a judge. There's there's evidentiary bar. A judge makes the decision, but, you know, it's not as high of a bar as like convicting someone of a crime. So this law, it's basically aimed at getting guns away from someone who already has them or already has a gun permit. I, I want to say the gun there, it, the, the, the gun, the, the law there, it does mention preventing someone from receiving or obtaining or purchasing weapons. Yeah. So there's some con- contemplation in the law of preventative measures, trying to prevent someone from getting a gun. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, the way the law is written as far as how it's enforced, the kind of evidence you need to get to, to get a firearms restraining order, it's really aimed at people, clearly aimed at people who already have guns I and see. someone close to them has determined, well, this person shouldn't be allowed to have these. Well, Annie, this shooter here uh, in Highland Park sounds like he had a ton of red flags. So why was he still able to get a gun or get more so, guns? You're right. So, um, I mean, the short answer here is that he was a legal purchaser. Um, several law enforcement people have confirmed this for us. He did not have a criminal background at the time he went in. To apply for a FOID card, which is a gun permit in Illinois. The background checks required for that simply would not have caught any of the concerning things you've mentioned. Uh, so he had the legal right to get the permit, which did allow him to go um, and purchase five firearms. I, I want to say one thing about this, Sasha, about the, um, the red flag law in particular, because I said it's people close to you can go, close to a person can go to a judge. The law does say in there that a law enforcement officer can go in and, and get one of these firearm restraining orders to, to prevent so somebody. So the police from, can actually. The police can go, according to the law, I, I, I got to say, I don't know how often that actually happens, but according to the law, a police officer can go in. However, the, the firearms restraining order, it's only for six months. It has to be renewed. Even if you said, hey, the Highland Park police in this case, they should have been proactive and gone and gotten this order preventing him from ever purchasing a gun. Yeah. They would have had to be going in every few months to re- to renew that. They would need new evidence why they needed it. It's not really, at least the way the law is written, it's not really a realistic way, I don't think, for, I for, for a law enforcement agency to try to prevent something. Well, well, speaking of law enforcement, Illinois State Police did receive a tip about the gunman from, from Highland Park Police back in 2019, right? This was three years mm-hmm. before the mass shooting. What did they actually do with that information, Annie? Yeah, so there were two visits, um, one of a report of a potential suicide attempt. Um, And according to police records, uh, they did speak with the parents. There was an indication that whatever had happened was being handled by mental health professionals. 
And there was also an indication on the report that there were not any immediate threats of harm that day. The, the more kind of um, uh, interesting report that has emerged is this one that results in a clear and present danger report. Um, they were in the home again at which there was a report that he had made a threat to kill people. Uh, there, the police came to the home. They did not determine that there was enough probable cause to make an arrest. They spoke with the family, um, and they left. But what they did is send a clear and present letter, clear and present danger letter to Illinois State Police. And I want to be really careful to say this is not a red related directly to the red flag law that Patrick was just talking about. This is a separate thing okay. in which law enforcement, school officials um, are asked, I believe they're mandated, actually, if they are aware that somebody is a danger to themselves or others, they they notify Illinois State Police for the purpose of letting them know in the event they get a gun permit application. Well, Annie, there was a, a visit in which police, uh, a visit to his home in which police took some of his knives. Is that the one that you were just describing or was that yet another time? No, no, no. That is, that is, um, thank you for adding that. That is the, that is the same um, visit. And this information did indeed get handed over to Illinois State Police who made the determinate. Well, at the time, at the time that they notified Illinois State Police, um, he did not have a pending FOID application. So, it wasn't an immediate issue. There was nothing immediate that Illinois State Police could do. But in interviews with reporters, they've said that they didn't deem it that it to be a, a threat. It didn't meet their threshold for um, clear and present. You know, uh, when I think of, of this this particular shooter, it, it remi- reminds me of that long time saying we always hear it. You know, if you see something, say something. Right? There were so mm-hmm. many things that popped up over the years uh, with mm-hmm. this guy. Mm-hmm. So much suspicious behavior. Um, does this, if you see something, say something, actually happen, Patrick? Are people actually doing that? Well, as you just heard heard Annie mention, you know, it, there's there's Illinois law that requires certain people, like teachers or police officers, to to report these clear and present dangers. Although, you know, I was saying before that the the sort of evidence bar it's not as high as convicting someone. Illinois State Police Director Brennan Kelly said yesterday the evidence bar for, for determining whether or not somebody is a clear and present danger, he said, is is high. I believe it's preponderance of evidence. So it's, it's higher than just probable mm-hmm. cause. Um, and I say that only to say that 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 just because you report something, which I think, you know, they're encouraging people to do, some people are required to do, yeah. does not mean that the Illinois State Police are going to be able to act, at least according to the statute or according to the way that they are reading the statute. Um in the in light of this, you know, we've been talking about the red flag law, which I think Annie is is really smart to point out is different. These are very separate things. The the sort of laws that we have, kind of by design in some ways, are a real patchwork around around gun regulation. Yeah. So there's the red flag laws, which is separate from the clear and present danger laws. You know, officials in wake of the shooting have been encouraging residents to to make use of those firearm restraining orders. You know, if you have someone in your life, if there's someone you know Mm -hmm. that you have a a close relationship to that you think is too dangerous to have a firearm, they're saying, go out and get one of these restraining orders. I guess I would leave it up to the listeners to determine whether or not they think that is officials kind of putting the burden on individual residents rather than on the system – or if that's them just trying to make best use of the laws we have currently. Are there instances, Patrick, of retaliation when people do report information to the police? 
Well, that's a really good question. I have not reported that out. I will say, you know, you have to sign an affidavit to do this. The person who is uh, who gets the firearm restraining order, if there's one entered, they are obviously notified of that. I mean, that's kind of the whole point. I could imagine if you think someone is dangerous, it'd be similar to going to court to get a restraining order in like case of domestic violence or something. Yeah. If you think someone is dangerous, there's going to be a certain level or potentially a certain level of fear to, to start taking the step because it's a court process. It, it you know, it, yeah. it will take some time. This is Reset. We are talking about gun laws in Illinois and how they failed to stop the mass shooting on Monday in Highland Park. With us are WBEZ's Patrick Smith and the Chicago Tribune's Annie Sweeney. Annie, I want to go back to the Foyd card that you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have learned that the shooter's father is the one who helped him get the Foyd card. What is that exactly? So at, at the time that he applied for the Foyd card, he was, I believe, 19 years old. At, at any rate, he was um, not old enough to get the Foyd card on his own. So his uh, father uh, sponsored him, essentially. State police said that his application included a parental legal guardian affidavit that was signed by the dad. And by Foyd um, card, we're, we're talking about a gun license. Right. Sorry, you're right. Illinois um, is one of um, the states in the country that requires people to apply for essentially a permit to purchase guns. Um, and this includes a background check. And uh, there's a few other, there's a list of other prohibitors, but the criminal background check is obviously key. And uh, But in, there is an age limit as well that his father um, sponsored him. So he was able to get the card in January of 2020. And once you have the Foyd card, what's the process to getting a gun after that in Illinois? Well, in, um, when you go into a, life, a federally licensed firearms dealer, you present the card um, as proof in Illinois that, you know, you have the right to purchase the gun and they do another background check there that is required at the FFL, and then you buy your gun. And if you pass those, the check at the at the FFL. And again, I think we mentioned this earlier, but the shooter bought all of his guns legally, right, Patrick? Yes. What we've heard from police so far is that he bought he bought five five guns in total, according to police. Five five guns in total, all of them legally. That includes. Again, according to authorities, two sort of high-powered rifles, including the one that he allegedly used in the the shooting on the Fourth of July. We don't um, yet know, or at least I don't yet know, that the state police are not making it public yet which exact dealers he purchased this from. But he said, but they have said that that at the very least, the majority, maybe all of them, were purchased in the Chicagoland area. Definitely all in Illinois. When do we stop using allegedly, especially when someone confesses? <laughs> well, <laughs> what we know so far is that prosecutors say Asking he confessed. For right. We know the prosecutors say he confessed, and and uh, as someone who doesn't have a lot of money, I will be continuing to use allegedly I until was he is say convicted. Crime reporters will always use that. Right? <laughs> always, right, right. It's ingrained. Yeah. Uh, so. What is it that's going to have to change, Patrick, to prevent tragedies like this one? Do we need stricter enforcement of this red flag law that we just talked about or new legislation? Well, I think that, that what happened here and the, the facts that we know actually show the limits of that red flag law. I mean, that, that, that there's really not a lot of role of, of there's not a big role there for, for actual government agencies in that. It's really putting the burden on individuals to say, this person I'm afraid of, I'm going to go to court and, and try to get their guns taken away. Uh, I think gun rights advocates would tell you that this tragedy proves the, the folly of trying to solve this problem with more gun laws. You know, Illinois has some of the tighter gun laws in the country. Highland Park has tighter laws still. 
The shooters still found a way around them. They would say that that's evidence that you're, you're not going to be able to legislate your way out of this, mm-hmm. although I can't say that I've heard a better solution from, from those gun rights advocates to these kind of tragedies. What I've heard on the ground from Highland Parkers, from people who were there or people affected by this tragedy, is that they think there just has to be some way to prevent a person with warning signs like this from getting a gun permit, from buying guns. Yeah. You know, that could mean expanding the criteria for rejecting gun permits, making it easier to reject them. As Annie was saying, there's very specific criteria in the law of what can or cannot sort of, you know, be the basis for rejecting it. It could mm-hmm. mean lowering the evidentiary threshold for considering someone a clear and present danger. Both of those ideas will get a lot of pushback. You know, um, legally here, the Second Amendment is it's a constitutional right that's been upheld over and over again. And if you have a constitutional right, any any efforts to try to restrict that are going to get a lot of pushback. Very true. Any thoughts there, Annie, on on what it's going to take to stop these mass shootings? Well, um, I think what we're going to see in the coming months are um, legislation ideas that we've heard of before. Assault weapons bans obviously have been talked about. Um, I've talked with some experts who um, would like to focus in even more specifically on the high-capacity magazine purchase. Some states have moved to limit those um, to 10 rounds. Um, I believe the shooter had three 30-round magazines with him um, during the shooting. So those are ideas. Um, but I, And I also think we, you know, the FOID, as Patrick was saying, at the criteria for getting a gun permit will probably be part of the conversation. But we've seen this before, like in when there was a shooting in Aurora, there was a lot of discussion about trying to add fingerprints to the FOID process. That yeah. did not work. Patrick, Highland Park's got an assault weapons ban, right? Meaning that assault weapons, they're not allowed within town limits. How can they enforce that, though? Well, I mean, it can be enforced in a couple of ways. I mean, one thing, you know, the alleged shooter, and I'm going to keep using that word, the <laughs> alleged shooter here, you know, he lived in neighboring Highwood. Uh, and, and we don't know exactly what, or I don't know off the top of my head what address he gave when he when he got his FOID or when he purchased the guns. But if he had given a Highland Park address, he would not have been allowed to purchase uh, one of these assault rifles. If, you know, in that 2019 incident, let's just use it as an example, if police had shown up and there was an AR-15 there mm-hmm. or an AR-15 style weapon, they would have been able to confiscate it and, and charge him with a crime then. So, you know, they can't prevent people from the surrounding communities or, or from anywhere else from, mm-hmm. from owning them. But as far as city limits, there are ways for them to enforce that. And I will say, to, to piggyback on what Annie was just saying, what I've been hearing from a lot of people in Highland Park is that we they want a statewide and really a federal assault weapons ban. I mean, that's the big thing. I've heard from a lot of people who who are who say, hey, listen, I, I have handguns or my family has handguns. I I don't I don't believe that we need to really restrict gun gun rights in a lot of ways. But it's these rifles. It's these rifles specifically and specifically that it needs to be federal because if you just have Highland Park, people can go somewhere else to buy them. If you just have Illinois, people can go other places to buy them. They you know, and again, I don't know how realistic that is as legislation. Uh, but that is what the people in Highland Park are saying they want. Yeah, one more thing on that point. Um, I think um, some of the research, though, also shows that there's stronger links between the mass shootings and the high capacity Mm. um, magazines, which I think it'd be interesting to see how that conversation could play out, given the pushback likely with an assault weapons ban. That's a really good point, and that's something that, that, that Senator Duckworth has talked about specifically. I mean, she talks about an assault weapons ban, but also high capacity magazines, so that's a really good point, Annie. 
We'll have to leave it there. Annie Sweeney is a reporter for the Chicago Tribune, and Patrick Smith is a criminal justice reporter for WBEZ. Thank you both. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.